Hello and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here for another thrilling, tantalising episode of the Bond Daft Project. Ranking Bond continues and also ends with this podcast. We have made it to the final of our ranking the Bond franchise. We're going to rank numbers 10 to 1. And so we will have a completed ranking list by the end of today. And that will effectively be the end of this project unless we do any bonus episodes in the future i've got a couple ideas maybe we could do returning but the main series ends today which is bittersweet i suppose guys it's nice to see completion but also kind of sad this is it and introducing of course for the last time potentially my bond aficionados francis murphy yo 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 steve mccall very good afternoon to you all and Gordon Webster. Good afternoon, Commander Barry. Ah, thank you. You know, g- good to join you for, I guess, a grand finale, really, isn't it? Because um, it's gone on so long, just like in the films, a big final battle. This is the third act. This is the big battle in Blofeld's volcano lair. Uh, so that would be an apt uh, reference if that film was in this top ten. Of course, it was kicked into the worst films. So, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, that's it, guys. This is it. We are, we've made it. <laughs> we've made it this far. We're still, I think, friends, uh, despite all the the infighting, trying to get those other films ranked. And I will actually, at this point, pull up the list in a moment uh, of what we've got left to fight it over. It'll be a nice cap off to the end of twenty twenty to to say that we've finally ranked the films. Just goes to show, doesn't it? The amount of time that we've put into this actually this project so when was it we started this was it summer last year i think it was april last year the first one yeah we did the episode zero like maybe april or something and then we started maybe like two months later was it was it as big a gap as that maybe a month later so what yeah it's been about a year and nine months yeah it's, it's crazy <laughs> yeah and that's we could have done like a Never Say Never Again one, a Casino Royale, the parody one, and even things like the influences that Bond had. I think the Austin Powers films might be an interesting kind of bonus episode. We can still do them, to be fair. Yeah. They're, they're not like, they're not something we definitely can't do now. The main films we've done, though, which is insane. Right. Okay, I've got the list. I'll share that with you guys. Uh, let's see now. So let's not, it's not an exaggeration to say that since we started this project, the entire world has changed. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's not usual that you would have that level of... I mean, it's interesting, actually, when you look back through some of the episodes, the progression of this funny little bit of news called COVID. You know, oh, that's something that's happening in China. Do you know what I mean? And then, and then as it goes on, this yeah. pro, the, you know, we've kind of captured that. It's kind of strange. Like, I think No Time to Die got sort of the big push. Uh and that was the big film the first film that really got that sort of like moved uh, release date and we were kind of like playing it down not playing it down but we were sort of like baffled that it was so far away at the time and then obviously my backlog of editing by the time i actually edited that one we were in full lockdown so i like that had to then kind of explain that the, the timeline of why we were so baffled like it's insane i, rem- I remember that sounding slightly inappropriate yeah 
Oh, yeah. so this chorus is completely overblown. What a fuss about nothing. But oh, shit. That was only because the, the way it, if it had been uploaded the next day, that would have been fine because yeah. that was how we felt at that time. That wasn't, it seemed so crazy that we weren't all working from home at this point. I think we were starting to do a wee bit of social distancing, just trying to kind of, kind of sort of keep on top of things. But we did not foresee where we're at now uh, at that point in time, which is crazy. I would say as well, Steve, being a, a big movie fan, not just the Bond films, but if you think of any of these heightened reality films where you think it's so, you know, the plot's so far-fetched, this sort of thing would never happen. I mean, how many people would have thought that coronavirus would have happened? How many people would have thought that the world would be just ground to a halt and the things we take for granted each day were just gone? You know, I mean, actually, you can actually, with some films, you can now look at them again, I find and say... Do you know what? This may seem far-fetched, but <laughs> so did coronavirus. I watched Dante's Peak the other day, which I got um, as part of a Christmas present, and likes of that, you know, a volcano exploding. It was meant to have like a 10,000 to 1 chance of ever happening, but, I mean, you think about like our grandparents' generation, nothing ha- like this happened then. There was a, a Second World War, First World War, but... <laughs> I mean, they're, they're but, pretty big. <laughs> yeah, big, but... I would say, though, I always thought, to me, there was always more of a chance of World War Three than a virus that stopped the world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I remember reading a sort of article, or maybe it was a video series, of, like, the seven, I think it was, like, the seven things that can wipe out human the human race, as it is that we know it type thing. The sort of Armageddon scenarios. And, like, one was a solar flare. Uh you know a solar flare the odds of it happening quite low and having it but if it actually did happen it could be devastating um the second one was something like uh tectonic plates moving and causing all sorts of like disruption to things and to the point yeah. that it was catastrophic as well third one was just us the, the human race and nuclear war uh the fourth one was a viral strain i'm sure um which is the one that's kind of happened but not to the point of well, not yet. Hopefully not. Uh, to the point of Armageddon. And um, what was the other ones? There was, um, I think, probably the... yeah, probably Yellowstone National Park, like that with that super volcano. If that goes, that will. I think that was grouped in with the tectonic plates, a sort of natural disaster kind of thing. Yeah, I think that would be. I can't remember if, if AI going rogue was one. Um, I don't know if that's maybe just a bit much. What was the other ones? There was a bit. There was seven, I remember, and I remember being fascinated by it. I think obviously the eventual one is the the sun expanding. That's the one that's going to take us out if we've somehow lived through all the others. Um, just naturally, the Earth's global warming and things like. That. What a grim <laughs> way to start this podcast. What? <laughs> uh, I was about to say, um, what, yeah. there's so much reasons for optimism at the moment, isn't there? But you know, um, it's just a lesson. To me, anyway, don't take life for granted. And if and doubt, record a podcast. Yeah, exactly. We've now got a record of the sort our lives around this era, which is kind of cool. Um, so, if you ever feel in life that your things aren't going great, you just turn to podcasting. Yep, that's what I think. That's the uh, that's the capiche. Um, free, that's, that's our catchphrase. Well, isn't it always look backwards? <laughs> yeah, always like looking oh, backwards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> Thanks, Gordon. Thanks for that that marketing uh, <laughs> genius bit of marketing there. No problem. Right. Okay. Let's uh, first of all, uh, 
get our top 10 films. So I don't know if we want to go through what we've got ranked already. Um, I'll just go through them quickly. Diamonds Are Forever is number 24. 23, Dying All Day. 22, You'll Live Twice. 21, The Man of the Golden Gun. 20, The World Is Not Enough. 19, Spectre. 18, For Your Eyes Only. 17, Quantum of Solace. 16, Moonraker. 15, Thunderball. 14, Of You To A Kill. 13, Octopussy. 12, Tomorrow Never Dies. And number 11, you were right, Live and Let Die, Fran. So, I think we agreed, Steve, thanks for reminding me, I'd forgotten about that, that Skyfall is automatically 10th, based on the sort of, um, the way the debate went the last time, isn't it? Yeah, we couldn't separate the two, so it was kind of the, I think the best uh, compromise we could come to. Right, there we go. So, of the ni- we've got nine other films there, so Skyfall's been locked in as number 10, that is not moving one inch. So, the nine films left, Doctor No, From Russia With Love, Goldfinger, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, The Spy Who Loved Me, The Living Daylights, A License to Kill, Golden Eye, and Casino Royale. Nine great films. We just have to rank them. Easy done, guys. This will be done in ten minutes. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll all agree. Um so As let, we always do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well we've done well so far. We you know, some good debates. The, 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 I can't remember the, the arguments now, but some of these films that have been like fighting it out has, has just made me laugh. Some of the films that have been compared. Uh, and yeah, so let's, let's now tackle these nine films. Number nine then. Anyone want to pitch a film they feel is fitting for number nine? Yeah. Right, Steve, I think I take do actually. I'm going to gonna kick us off and i think uh i think if the spy who loved me is anywhere on this list the highest it can go is number nine so i think this is the one i basically i watched this film back this week because it's the one that i really didn't have any memory of it just kind of didn't stick in my head so i went and rewatched it and i mean if i'm honest i'm not entirely sure it should be top 10 but oh, okay it's kind of where we've got it now basically i forgot how badly judged the music was so this is the one that i think because it was made is this 1970 something by yeah chance? 77 right in the kind of era of disco and i can see why because it was obviously cool at the time but with the film it just doesn't work and i think what they've done is kind of fallen into the trap rather than going musically with what worked with the film and the action and the ambience they went with what the public thought was cool at the time it's the equivalent of them soundtracking um, the newest film, uh, No Time to Die, with drill music or something like that, because that's, <laughs> what, the kids, because that's what the kids like. It'd be it, grime with it now? I don't know. Well, that, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, uh, oh, look it up. It's uh, sort of young London gang members kind of... Oh, is that what that's called? Rapping right? at each other's, yeah. Okay, I've just realised how out of touch I am then, if that's, that's called. <laughs> that's showing me up now. As a result, I now sound down with the kids, so yeah. I'll take that quite happily. Yeah. <laughs> See, I, I got to laugh loudly there because I, I was able to show I, I was aware of what that was. But um, yeah, the fa- the idea of drill music being a James Bond, the spies all sending each other the music videos, you know what I mean? Like, exactly, on Snapchat. <laughs> like, we're coming to get you, you know, we're going to fucking kill you. Yeah, it would work for this. One. That'd be great. <laughs> It's just, it's it, basically, it's the disco soundtrack to that film really doesn't work. Um, 
And then even beyond that, there's that um, there's that scene where uh, Bond and uh, what's the name are escaping from Jaws in the van, and there's this weird marching band tune. Yeah, yeah. And again, oh, that, kind of that is going, terrible. Yeah. Why? Why is that there? Isn't her name um, Anya or something? Anya. Was uh, it Anya in that film? She's like a Russian. Yeah, triple X. Yes, yeah. that triple X. That's the one. Yeah, and not even... to be confused with a Vin Diesel character. <laughs> that... <laughs> I would love if those two did get mixed up. Thank you, you for clarifying the love interest. For, <laughs> for I just realised there was a previous podcast. I was actually alluding to the Vin Diesel triple X, and I wasn't aware whether that was confused with Anya Masova. I, I, I sometimes I get them say. confused, but I'm glad you've made that um, distinction there. So we're, <laughs> we're okay now. It may have something to do with die another day. Mm, mm-hmm. You look yeah. at the two of them side by side, and I can see where the confusion comes from. <laughs> yeah. We may have, um, I don't know if we ever touched on this. They, there was an idea to actually bring Anya back in A View to a Kill as, as a cameo, but what they did instead was they'd pull even over. It wasn't in the film for that long. Hmm. It was the same as there was an idea to bring Waylon back. That would be cool. I think it was maybe Die Another Day. Oh god, I'm glad you didn't come back for that because I wouldn't it's want that... the character of Waylon yeah. in that film. She deserved better, yeah. What, uh, what, I w- what I will say is I actually have to say that I do agree with um with Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, the music element is kind of one element, but even if you look beyond that... There was there's moments. I mean, things like when when Bond's on the tanker with the American uh, captain guy, and they find the that control console. This is the point where they've realised that there are two submarines about to fire nuclear warheads. One at Moscow, one at New York, create a big nuclear war, whatever. So they reprogram it to turn the submarines around to fire at each other. And they've come across these command consoles. None of them have a clue how to work it, and they've got three minutes to do it. Otherwise, the world's destroyed. So Bond sits down at the first console he comes to. And picks up the instruction manual. Oh yeah. And turns to page one and goes beep 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 beep, and he's done it. Yeah. And I just I was watching that going, come on! It, I mean, there's got to be something better than that. I mean, the instruction manual for it would not just be sitting lying out open at the page that has the exact instruction required to reverse the impending doom. I did uh, notice I mean, that small as a a small weakness. <laughs> I didn't like that. And there's there's also there's, there's that horrible scene with the the American captain in Triple X where he offers to let her use the shower. Mm. And just that whole scene which is set up for a kind of awkward, weird double taking privates. You never seen a woman in a shower before. That whole scene was just oh it's awful and unless mm. I didn't like that at all. Compelling um, argument. <laughs> I just I I watched and thought I don't I just don't particularly enjoy this. It's because I went back to my previous notes and I ranked it relatively high, and I'm not sure why. I think I mean it's it's got loads of good stuff in it. I love the it's got a massive battle in it. It almost harks back to the volcano scene from You Only Live Twice. The it, massive battle at the end of the boat is spectacular. It's the same director, um, Lewis Gilbert. Is that my, is that my right? Gordon? Yeah. So Lewis Gilbert did the sort of three films, and I always feel that the template for his films is quite, you can see the through line between You Live Twice, Spy Who Loved Me, and Moonraker. They both have yeah. Ken Adams on his, probably his best on all, all on all three, his best. Like, those sets for the villain's lairs and things like that are fantastic. And Spy Who Loved Me with the super tanker as well as uh, Strongberg's um, kind of main lair, both are amazing. Um, and they both culminate in huge big set piece battles which 
is probably the strength for each all three of them uh like i think yep. so I, I think there's an element of that that i like i just loved seeing all the the explosions and the gunfights and things like that going off and the spy who loved me was maybe i think having a more energetic bond as in the roger moore it probably is peak and yeah. over a connery kind of shrugging through the scenes is what it you know, pipped it over the young of twice battle at the end. I uh, agree. Roger Roger Moore's fantastic in it. I've got to give him that. And Triple uh, X is, for the most part, pretty good as well. Yeah. You've also got Jaws. For me, so I, I mean, you've made some great arguments and it's slowly coming down. I, I've got it actually about where it's sitting right now in that kind of mid area of of the sort of list. And that's kind of where I saw it. The, the perks are weird that it's almost like it edges above a couple of these other films on the list because it hasn't dated as but not musically like like in the sense that there's other things about the other films that are like really hard to push them high up because i feel like quite kind of like oh that's not aged very well and things like that the spy who loved me didn't really have any of that it was a <coughs> clean slate not, they didn't really yeah not well, that, 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 <coughs> the, the shower scene and the the very final scene where bond the final line of the film what you're doing keeping the british end up oh yeah Oh, I, I, I don't like that at all. Uh, well, that, that's the thing, though. Like, I, I feel like we can't, you know, unless we're going to heavily smash Goldfinger. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, it depends. It's degrees. It's like I mean, we made this argument before, you know, over sort of the quality of the entire film over one horrendous scene. Where well, that's, some, that's yeah, it. I some, mean, I've I've kind of decided that's that's the way I'm going into this one. So I guess do you know what I mean? Like I've decided to kind of not. I feel like we kind of put that to bed. <laughs> Pardon my expression, actually. Well, uh, but um, yeah. yeah, like in a way, like I don't know if any of them. If we go by the Goldfinger theory, because I kind of settled with that that it was a small scene and it doesn't affect the whole movie. Do you know what I mean? In that sense, like when you look at the whole film, I feel like there's not too much in. I don't think there's too much in any of the top tens. Does that make sense? They've when, all got roughly the same amount. There's nothing horrendous about any of them but they've all got moments that we'd all i think every single film would go oh i'm not sure yeah yeah it's, yeah it's the cornering ones think... of the ones that have aged the worst in that respect and and yeah. i suppose a little on her majesty's by the time you get to the mirror era there's a couple of wee moments but they're not as they're not as awful they're a bit groan worthy and cringe worthy the spy who loved me for me like i suppose steve you, you mentioned that shower scene yeah i'd forgotten about that it doesn't really i, I just think it's that's that kind of humor it's just a wee bit men humor kind of thing i don't think it's anything bad the, the things i think about the spy who loved me for me are um more probably his peak which i like and uh, it's the only more film in this top 10 and yeah it's the set design that i always think of and and jaws essentially a, a kind of jaws being this you know villain who is almost supernatural in that way he uh, kind of appears like out of nowhere and is genuinely scary and menacing um so that's why that's what it's got for me and a good and a good villain stromberg's decent he's maybe not i don't know what if, if we put him on that but um he's all right yeah he's not yeah he's not like he's not the best by any stretch but he's he's not bad or anything I, you know it's not he was i like i like the whole kind of idealistic yet unhinged thing because he he's the one that wasn't in it for the money he wanted to legitimately change the world yeah. he just wanted to change the world by creating an undersea underwater uh 
which is I don't, I don't know it's a slightly bizarre concept the way he died his death was a little bit he kind of ham acted a bit over dramatic when he was killed <laughs> which was a bit disappointing yeah but as a villain yeah i quite liked i quite liked his his lair in particular the underwater um massive dining table room yeah with the, the windows that opened out and the the shark i mean the, the, i forgot i forgot how bad that shark was the sort of fake shark that supposedly chews up his secretary but basically just kind of nuzzles her <laughs> yeah, which yeah. was i mean unintentionally hilarious i wouldn't i wouldn't take marks off i just found it funny ah uh, yeah definitely there is something quite noticeable about that yeah i, I don't know what it is like spy hill i've made it's a very popular film but it's not everyone's cup of tea so i mean it's fair enough the the things i can see why these things for for you especially steve um you're not too happy or satisfied with for me though there's to me it is isolated incidents because there's so much good stuff in that film because to me this is a top three bond film i think i think if we look at if there is any criticism i think maybe that the plot is a bit formulaic it's kind of it's regurgitating the you only live twice one but putting in a c context and of course i said before the thing about stromberg like how does he get to the point he creates a world under the sea? I do not know. <laughs> but he, Kurt Jürgens is Stromberg. He's, his real presence is such an iconic layer. That set of his whole landscape is incredible, very pioneering. Ken Adams' production design was also really pioneering. And the, just the tanker itself, the, the Laparis. The stunt work in this film is incredible. It's got probably the best film stunt of all time, in, in my opinion. Either that or, I don't know, maybe the, the Man with the Golden Gun spiral jump. But anyway, the Union Jack parachute, what a pre-title sequence. Anya Amasfa is a great supporting character. Jaws does have menace in this film a lot more than in Moonraker. That, again, really freshened up the franchise. Probably the best henchman since Odd Job. You've got, you've got fantastic special effects. There's a great supporting ca- cast as well. I thought um, Captain Carter was a, a, a strong ally with a real presence. Naomi, the helicopter pilot. And the, the Lotus Esprima, I mean, such an iconic vehicle. A submarine car was... And the, the music, well, I mean, yeah, again, I, mean, I can see why those certain bits, but that's to me, that's just certain bits. And if you talk about disco sound, I don't really hear a lot of that in the film. Prominent when you do hear it. I think, it, you know, that you get the Bond 77 tune and the the pre-titles you get about underwater but I don't really have a problem with it and I think there's enough of the Bond theme there's enough kind of uh, dreamy underwater music there's good classical music again it's just, it just comes down to how it does with me with so many films there's enough good iconic stuff I even think you know again I, Steve Barry I agree with you what you said about Roger Moore both of you actually you, Roger's probably peaking this film I think the thing with this <clears throat> with this film is that, and the thing with myself with this list is that it's not so much about films being what it's just it's about looking at like when Steve McCormick says the name of the movie and I'm, I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking actually yes I would like the other ones more it's it's just about does that make sense it's is like it better than anything else on the list yeah uh-huh, yeah it's hard that, to compare really because yeah. they all have different sort of strengths and different weaknesses I think. I mean, this this film, I think to be one of the best Bond films, you need that classic John Barry score. I think, like, maybe Goldeneye, like, there's enough stuff to kind of still get it near the top, but 
you know, you can't, to me, that's the John Barry sound is part of Bond, so that's kind of another argument. I think as well, having Fleming's Bond, I think this film, people do quite rightly say there's there's some slightly outrageous bits, you know, Jaws getting dragged in there with Magnet, you've got the, you know, like submarine car, but at the same time, I mean, Roger in that film, he's serious when he needs to be, he's got, there's a, a wink and a nod, there's plenty of great one-liners, but, you know, if he's cold at times, you know, he, he's actually, it's one of the few films you actually see Roger's Bond running around shooting a lot of guys. He's in the, in the tanker, you know, the battle between the, the, the Navy men and, and Stromberg's men. Uh, you know, he's, he, he's got a fairly high kill count in that film. He knocks Shan, well, yeah, he knocks Shandor coldly off the roof when he's at fight, you know, um, Stromberg's henchman. And he's also like, you see the whole thing in the run up to that in Cairo where, He's, he's looking for for fakesh and he his I think it's his wife's in the apartment and Bond it's like he's he's sort of he's been he's obviously been a bit sort of lecturous with her he's get he's got his arms around in that but he but the end said he keeps saying like where where is he it's like all that but he's still it's all about the mission do you know what I mean that's sort of, it's like little moments like that you can see Fleming's Bond coming through so I think if it this and for your eyes only the two films probably with Moore that he got close to Fleming's Bond. You've you've gotten with his his Navy roots, which I think there's a lot of love, a lot to love about that as well. So I guess what I'm curious about is like like are you saying <clears throat> Gordon the film should be a wee bit higher on the what where would you put it? Well, just on a personal level, I, I would put it top three, man. It's fair. All right, about five for me. But Steve's argument is so strong that I could I could knock it down probably a couple of slots. For ninth, I feel that I want to argue for maybe a couple other films to see what the room can agree on, to see if there's a consensus that there's maybe another film or two before The Spy Who, the Lo- Who Loved Me. Um, so, um, having said that, I will then suggest... Now, uh, it's a tough one, but... It's probably then, I know that the room is not going to agree with me on this, but I'll put it out there. I'll, I'll put one out there to see what the reaction is, and then I'll suggest the one that I think might have a bit more of a bit more sway. So the first one I suggest is On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, you, uh, yeah. you be- betray her. Yeah. No, like, I, so that's the reaction I, got, I was expecting. I, I don't think there's anyone that's going to agree with that's in a number ninth spot then, yeah? Am I right on I would that? say, for me, that's I wouldn't have it near the top, maybe seven or eight for Honor Majesties. I think there's a real atmosphere to that film. It's like, you don't, it's kind of got this weird, this edgy atmosphere. You only really get it maybe in Casino Royale. It's, and it's hard to explain. It's just one of these things you, that isn't really tangible. You just, there's this incredible atmosphere about it, but there's kind of, I know, Steve, like you've obviously issues with the, with Blofeld's master plan, don't you? Yeah, Blofeld himself, <laughs> the plot, the background plot, and the sort of um, elements of the dated stuff. That one scene that was just ridiculous with the female assassins and the food thing. We've we've discussed it in detail. We don't have to regurgitate all of that stuff. But you know, and you can so combine that with the silliness of the plot, and for me, a, a relatively weak Blofeld, um, and also. Um, it's some t- there was slight points in the the music and a wee bit in in Lazenby's performance at the beginning that I wasn't so kind of convinced of the of him as Bond, but 
having said that, I do give him credit for the rugged kind of the fight. He was the more kind of he, he did a lot of the actual fighting and the stunts himself and things like that, and also the sentimental kind of side of it that he brought. That I Gordon has pointed out from the very first podcast that probably Connery might not have been able to bring for that film, which is very pivotal to the the film's you know. core core thing. So it's a tough one. It's just I don't know why. It's maybe because it's completely devoid of humor and for me um and maybe i like a slight a slight humor just a little touch of it i don't feel this film has it and that's maybe I think it why. has humor but it's maybe just not it's not um it's a bit kind of misguided you know the one-liners maybe lazenby doesn't have that quite the order to pull them off that's probably what it is and that's maybe what it comes down to is he and his first film um given a mighty task and i think he mostly pulls it off but he doesn't completely pull it off um so maybe that's what it is but i understand the positives of this film are high like real high one of the best relationships that they've they've been able to kind of create in the entire franchise was film six and this is dame diana rigg and and a brilliant character brilliant stunt scenes with her leading in that in that respect and a great setting great villain lair um the, the peace gloria and it's got a you know a lot of films have then copied it and tried to emulate this film this is like the goldfinger of of you know a few years later where goldfinger set a template this film in another way created a sort of template um that's the snowy aesthetic the ski scenes have all been taken from this film in a way and the relationship with Bond and his counterpart that is on equal grounds almost. So uh, most of the Bond women were looking to that performance a lot of the time. Um, yeah, well that's it. I mean, I feel like it was a <clears throat> it was an important Bond film, and it was also the one that proved that Bond could survive an actor, if that makes sense. Um, that you know that. Yeah, that, I see. What you, mean. Yeah. you know, there was the, it wasn't there was the just very... one man that could be Bond. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I, but I think that it's there's a magical quality to that movie. There's something about it. There's a there's something special there. And That's kind of the, what I mean. Like an aura. There's some kind yeah. of aura about it. It's weird, isn't there, it? It's I hard to explain. That. I. It's it's like if you go to a certain place where something you just feel an atmosphere. It's like you can't touch it. You don't know what it is. I think what it is is it's the atmosphere of Bond. It's it's the the you know. There's a, a the reason that the Bond franchise has survived as long as it has is that it does have a magic to it. There's a there's a there's a an element of escapism and magic to James Bond as a franchise. And in fact, they're almost like you know it's funny because on Christmas Day I was watching Die Hard too, and I was thinking it's such a Christmassy film. I mean it is you know it's obviously set during Christmas time or whatever, but it's like an action film with people killing each other and all that. But there's something about Bond that's similar to that. It's like you know. In fact, me and my uncle Robert, who's been on the, the cast a few times, we were talking about how he was saying how in the you know in the old days um, families would sit and watch but a Bond film would come on the telly on Christmas Day usually, and everybody would sit and watch one of the Bond movies together. So there's a there is a magical atmosphere, but I think Honor Majesty's really kind of maybe out of all of the films cap- captured that magic more than any other in in a weird way. I can't. I can't quite describe it. Well, it is kind of a Christmas film, isn't it? It's actually set yeah, it's the most Christmas. Christmas or, of the Bond. Yeah, the snowy aesthetic definitely helps. I, look, um, I I knew when I said it that it wasn't going to convince in this this section 
uh, this podcast. Can I, give well, I don't think it. I don't think it goes to number nine, but I, I do. I mean, obviously, in my personal list, I'd have it probably way up the top. But I can see how it would maybe occupy. It could occupy somewhere between like five and seven on the top ten. Right. Do you okay. know what I mean? Well, yeah. Go I on. suggest. Yep. Setting and yet another cat amongst the pigeons here <laughs> for number nine. I think like this is the theme of this podcast. <laughs> oh, I know. I know what you're going to do, Gordon. Who do I want to upset the most? Uh, I don't know what he's going to do. Oh, number nine is 1987's Living Daylights, I would say. Oh, wow. Wow. No, I, I, I just can't see how that's not as good as... Yeah, um, I'm kind of... You know, I mean, like, I mean, I would even have that above Honor Majesties. Wow. Okay, I, I thought yeah, Honor but... Majesties was number two for you. Well, yeah. my list is modulating and moving around as we're talking, but, like, I mean, looking at it... You know, I know that Honor Majesties has the magic to it, but License to Kill and The Living Daylights, I mean, that 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 era, to me, is so potently good, you know? Yeah, the the triple the, the, the triple threat films, The Daylights, License to Kill and Goldeneye, for me, is three films all back-to-back that they were, they were killing it, they were on top game. And they've not, I don't think they've ever had a, straight, a strong run like that since the very first four, three or four films. Because they've always yeah, they were, up, ups and downs after that. Yeah. That, that three in a row was incredible. I think uh, The Living Daylights, I mean, it's not really got anything to do with Dalton, really, but I wouldn't, I would rank it a bit lower. But listen, let's make no mistake, this is a... I guess it's made into our top ten for a reason. So oh, I know, I know. It's a it's, caveat. You still love the film. It's yeah, there. I do because yeah. I really think you feel you feel Fleming's bond throughout that film, almost right throughout it. Um, especially that sniper scene, which is probably one of the the best scenes in, involving Bond ever. But um, and I like he's obvious. He's quite. He can be quite aggressive and brutal. Um, like you see him like when he. When he confronts General Pushkin, he remember him like he rips the dress off Pushkin's girlfriend and like orders her to like do this thing to surprise the henchman coming through the door. And um, his bonds like very through. He's just very sort of to the point throughout it. There's not there's not a great deal of of humour from from Dalton, but you know that's maybe fine because you just you feel Fleming's bond in that. And there's still a bit of this. I think I guess because it's a John Glenn film, you still get that. Little sprinkling of humour and style, like him, like riding the cello case with Cara uh, uh-huh. down the mountain and stuff. And yeah. I mean, it's such. And I actually said at the time it was one that one of the top three title sequences. I think the I think the dual villains let it down because I just don't really feel much danger with Koskov and Whitaker. Mm. I don't know. I mean, the thing is, like, I can see like nine and eight and all that. Like you know, Spy Doctor No Spy Who Loved Me being like eight and nine. Yeah, you know I mean? the other one I was going to suggest was Doctor No. Like, I, I really like Doctor No, and it's got some class, and there's a lot of great stuff about it. But, I mean, a lot of things have surpassed it since then, and I feel like nine, if out of the films on this list, if it wasn't for me on Imagines, it would be Doctor No, I think. Um, I think, uh, well, one one other thing, just that I'll not say any more about The Living Daylights, but I think maybe more of an issue, which. You don't want, for me, you don't want a film where there's a lengthy bit where you can switch off. And I think it's the only Bond film where I can switch off temporarily. I think as soon as Bond and Cara go up in that big cargo plane, you're wondering what the point 
what's the point of it? It's like they're not they're not kind of racing against the clock to stop anything. It's just like I think Bond goes away with all the opium, and there's no. It's like Bond sort of escaped them, and there's no. There's nothing. There's there's sort of no odds. He's, there's well, he's sort of against the odds, but there's no. There's not really enough tension there. Like there's not. There's nothing that Bond's really chasing. It only it gets tense when Necros appears in the plane, but it's it's kind of. You know, like he's the dangers away by that point. Do you know what I mean? Because he's taking the opium away, and then that what, whole thing in Afghanistan. It sorry, wasn't there a bomb? You know, but Bond, it's like Bond forgets about the bomb. No, the bomb, <laughs> the bomb Bond had put. Did Bond not put it on there to destroy the opium? Yeah, maybe. Or something. I can't quite remember, but I just don't think the stakes are high enough in that in that bit. And you kind of Bond forgets about the bomb, so I find that we forget about the bomb, and it's. I think there's I think too much think... plot there. There's too. It's overly plot. I don't know if it's overly plotted is the right word, but there's so much going on with the cargo plane, the opium, the diamonds. There was some diamonds in there, and there was also yeah. the bomb. And then there's there's Necros, and you've got him trying to save. There's just a lot going on that they kind of get confused. They definitely lost the tightness of the first two thirds of the film and that final third. I will give you that definitely. I think it's when they go to Afghanistan that the film trips itself up a little bit. Yeah, and it's not good. I think I don't think Felix Leiter's got a strong enough presence in that film I, I mean to me phoenix lighter is just a, he's just like another character like q or something i don't think they need him sometimes and i don't they have him there for just a kind of yeah it's phoenix lighter he's in the books I, I don't really if he's not got a great scene like a strong scene it doesn't really bother me because he's just a character that's yeah the, yeah it doesn't really bother me in any way it could be anyone it could be john smith I don't. I think Joe Don Baker's miscast. I've said it before as Swittaker, but I, I like Joe Don Baker as an actor. I enjoyed him in Cape Fear with Robert De Niro, for example. But and he's kind of good as Jack Wade and Goldeneye. But I feel he does kind of come into it a bit at the end. I like the psychoticness of him. How his obsession with um is like a failed general, a failed failed war veteran, and how he's got his own wee kind of model military setup to attack Bond that's kind of something that could be in the books but it's like he's not got enough of a presence to be a really memorable villain I kind of like the villains in that film for the reason that they're not glorified as like elitist types they are wannabes they're losers in a respect um, and they're as different I like that, they feel more underground the way that that film is, they completely fit that film there's nice small touches of humour like I mentioned, I mean I just suddenly remember there, like when I think the scenes with Q are good. I like when they're helping Kozkov defect, and like Q's like out of breath and shoveling pills <laughs> down his mouth, and then you've got like, like I said, the cello ride. The I like to remember there's the woman and who helps Kozkov defect, who has to distract the technician, <laughs> and just there's you can tell it's a John Glenn film, but then you've got the sort of the darkness that the Dalton brings to. It. Um, brilliant. you even get do you know as well I think there's you get small touches of Bond there's like kind of charming scenes of like him acting as a spy there's a bit and it took me a while to notice this when he's in Tangier when he's spying in General Pushkin he gets there's like these it's like mariachi singers in the streets some sort of street band he, he, tell, he slips them money to get them to play to hit, so they can distract Pushkin and then you've got I don't know if you remember when he's trying to help um it's early in the film when he's in Bratislava. He's, he's trying to get Kara to hide from the KGB, and they like he waits till the tram's going past and their view's blocked, and he pretends the cello case is her. It's, there's some 
There's some real quality stuff. I think mostly, mostly in the first half of the film. Okay. It's the second half. Of it. Well, that, that's the thing is you you know with this list we could end up in what's like an infinite spiral. Yeah. Because where we we start to we start to put something down <clears throat> towards number nine, then we start to pull it up to higher again. Then we put another one down at number nine. We start pulling it up higher again. We do it to another film, and we just cycle through all the movies, finding all the bits that are. We just have to fucking decide which one is not as good as the others, right? So, what's slightly better than Skyfall, but not as good as the others on the list? I would say as a very safe bet for that would be Doctor No. For me, yeah, I would go Doctor No. Um, Steve, you've obviously you not mentioned Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, what's your feelings on Doctor No in this case? Yeah, see, I I remember Doctor No just being very enjoyable. I can watch it. I think I've watched it a couple of times now, and I think just it's the the sort of the genesis it introduces everything. It's not quite, I suppose, as um, important perhaps as From Russia and Goldfinger because they're the ones that really established the franchise. Doctor No feels a little more standalone. I'll give it that much, but I don't know. I found it more enjoyable to watch there are more elements of that that kind of hooked me despite the despite how old it obviously is it's not even i mean i would i would rank it above even honor majesties which is another one that i rewatched recently and actually didn't enjoy it as much as i thought i would okay i think a lot of the magic that comes that was being discussed about honor majesties previously is to do with the tracy storyline which isn't actually as prominent in the film as I first, I think on first watching, it hits you so much, particularly because of that ending, that you almost forget about the rest of the film and how prominent the stupid plot at the top of the uh, revolving allergy clinic was. There's what, probably I completely agree with you. There's probably enough ammunition there, I think, for us to maybe <laughs> slot on our Majesties in. Because, like I said, for me, if it's not nine, it's I don't know, maybe pushing eight or something. Maybe and more similar to what you said there, Stephen, that the just issues with the plot is like. How Blofeld can just brainwash loads and loads of women, you know that. For me, the the reasons that film stands out is because of the love story with Tracy, the effect it has in Bond, the just how like what a cornerstone to the franchise that that is. Knowing that that's kind of damaged Bond forever. I also didn't particular. I also didn't like how quickly and how easily Tracy turned up in switzerland after yeah escapes from blowfield it's like he was at the the ice rink and he sits down kind of dejected looks up and she's yeah. there but i know like the why hell did she get there and how did she know he was there it's just it's so one in a million and it's such an important point because that's where he bumps into tracy again and that's it's such an important part of the film and yet it's so one in a million chance it's almost unbelievable it kind of takes you out <laughs> slightly so it was maybe a... slightly more likely than J.W. Pepper turning up in Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very, very good point. But that, that's the thing, though. I mean, I do. Th- in my opinion, that stuff falls into the unreal escapist view of it because that's how you know. It's almost like the fate aspect of her that that fate would trump all odds. Do you know what I mean? That she would appear. Uh, yeah, yeah. completely against all chances there and I think that says something to Bond's character about her significance to him you know um, it's like do you know that's a, that's a, that also makes me think you know how Bond in this franchise he's he's so often the knight in shining armour that comes to rescue one of the female characters but in there you've got the exact opposite Bond looks for one of the first times in the whole franchise Bond looks bloody 
full of fear there, just really panicking, and she turns up to save him. So it's the they're reversing what usually happens there. See, that's why I don't think it deserves to be at number nine, right? Now, I, I just don't feel like it is... I don't. I feel like it's got more important bits to it than, say, Doctor No or The Spy Who Loved Me. I feel like it's got more... There's more meat to it. There's more magic to it, I think, than those two. I certainly would, would agree that it's not like a... In the top five, I could say I could say that. Looking at the list myself, I mean, there's other films I'd put above it. Actually, thinking about it, but um, I mean, it's certainly not. I, I feel like Doctor No and The Spy Who Loved Me. I could see The Spy Who Loved Me being nine, Doctor No being eight, and Honor of Majesty's being seven. Um, this is a tough one. Yeah, call. we've all come up with totally different films. If um, yeah. if if it was between those three, which it's starting to sound like we're zoning in on those three to try and rank on this set of the list. Yeah. If it, if it wasn't on Her Majesty's Next, I would be putting Doctor No there, although I feel Doctor No is number eight, but I, I would concede on that. Um, I feel, I think I prefer The Spy Who Loved Me over Doctor No. It feels just... Um, I would agree with that as well, because, well, obviously I've said it, but <laughs> but I do feel that Doctor No is... Doctor No isn't fully formed enough to be... I mean, it's fully, it's important enough to be in the top 10, but I don't feel like it's fully formed Bond. Do you know what I mean? It's the very first film, isn't it? Yeah. So I just I don't feel that it's... I don't feel that it's got that... I feel like given it the, the number nine slot, or or number eight, I suppose, eight or nine, I'd put Doctor No and Spy Who Loved Me. Whatever folk decided they wanted that to be, I'm fine with that. Um, I do personally think Spy Who Loved Me is maybe better than Doctor No. I agree with that. I, I see that being number eight. Because it is more of a fully formed Bond movie, but it has its problems, obviously. And then, I, but I feel like neither of those has the magic of Honor Majesties or the importance to the entire franchise in terms of what, what, what Honor Majesties proved that Bond, the Bond franchise, could survive the actor, and also gave that incredible kind of that um, love story, and that it, it brought that storyline of Tracy and the, and that into the movies. Maybe, maybe not referenced so much, but it's part of the myth. It's a big part of the mythology for fans as well. Yeah, you know? it is. Uh, the only thing I would say is on that argument, and I mostly agree with you, t- um, despite that. But the franchise, they kind of admit, in, in a way, admitted that they needed Connery back by having him back for the next film. So, it w- and the fact that it got so much less, um, it did less well. It was the weakest of the early films, um, comparatively. And so uh, I feel it, like it, it aged better. It, yeah, it's aged better. It's the film that people now look back and appreciate the things it did, but audiences at the time didn't really warm to it. Um, you know, I I liken it to the Bourne films where they recast Bourne for with um what's his name from the Marvel films, Hawkeye. Uh, they recast him, and that film was well went under the radar, like barely made it, and then they got. You know, I think there was talks to get Matt Damon back. I can't remember if they actually if they did another film, but they were trying to get one going because they just couldn't see Bourne without Matt Damon. The thing to remember about Doctor No, unlike any of the other films, with it being the first one, the I think the budget was only about one million dollars or one million pounds, and for what they did with that money is incredible. I think because we know from just obviously inflation, everything it would be the one with the smallest budget, but to transform a popular literary character into a cinema hero with 
you know, I don't think it looks like it's a one million dollar film. I think that's a very it's something it's definitely something to be mindful of. So is it really between Honor Majesties and Doctor No? Is that what we're it sounds no, because like Steve, it. you said you were going to put Spy Who Loved Me number nine. Oh, and yeah. I still I still absolutely would, but I can see that the room's not necessarily with that. And the fact that people have it, if, for example, I've got it at nine and um, Gordon's got it top three. I think it therefore has to be sort of somewhere in the middle, slightly higher up. So that's absolutely fair. I can see the argument for Dr. No being lower in fairness. I get that it's not it's not quite as important as films two and three, as I mentioned, because it's not quite they hadn't quite established the elements for what would then go on to be the Bond films. Um, so it's maybe not as... It's, I, I personally enjoy it more, but I can see how, in the grand scheme of things, it would probably have to be ranked below some of the more established Bond films. Yeah. And it's also incredible that Dr. No's entire budget was $1 million. Six films later, $1 million is what they paid Sean Connery to return in uh, in Diamonds. Yeah, yeah. That is, uh, Dr. No is a... F- is is an amazing achievement. Like um, they had it, they hit the ground running with casting. That was one major thing. Casting Sean yeah. Connery, that you have to applaud that, and the style with a super villain like Doctor No himself. You know the exotic locations, all of that. The the writing, the sort of you've had your six. All these kind of like really classy. Like there's a classiness to it, and they hit that on the first film, which is. Yeah. something i mean for me yeah. it's uh it loses points on you know bringing up the old argument but where it's dated as this one had this sort of kind of uncomfortable hint of racism throughout um no like oh, like horrific scene like say in the goldfinger stretch but it's just an un- uncomfortable feeling throughout the film just with the way bond interacts with quarrel and things like that i think the race issues the kind of where it's dated it's a bit more prolonged than doctor no that's why i brought it up in our you yeah know, bond's dated podcast. i agree yeah, because yeah. it's just an undercurrent made, throughout really yeah for quite yeah definitely i think and as i said i think a lot of that's got to do with the book but where um i, I mean the real the time main, of the film as well 62 i think yeah yeah of course yeah yeah definitely but i think because they followed. They really kind of followed the book to a T. And the the book. I mean, I've said before that the kind of language used in the book. But I just really love seeing Bond act as a detective. And even like when I say acts like a detective, he literally does kind of make inquiries in that book, as asking questions like that the police would ask. And but Bond Bond's a cold-hearted killer. You know, he kills Professor Denton cold blood. He stabs a guy in the swamp. And this is a 1962 film, right? Um, a guy who he, who he could have easily left and just hidden from, he actually goes up and stabs him in the back. But just to see the exotic locations, I think just the way at that time it would have captured the public's imagination, this is how a spy could be. This this spy could, you know, drink the best drinks, eat the best food. He could, uh, you know, have a holiday while he's on a mission. You know, he could interact with that. Another agent from America that's equally as cool as him with Felix Leiter. Connery just, he was so self assured and cool in that film. There's, I think, there's just, there's a real kind of energy to the early, there's a real atmosphere to the early scenes in London. It's like a dark, wet night in London. You see him, his first meeting with them is just amazing. And his first meeting with Money Penny. Just, there's a, there's real attention to detail in the film as well. There's, uh, 
Yeah, Connery just to I think the way I think it all comes back to the way they took a a creation from one of the books and kind of brought it into cinematic form. We know it got fine tuned by the time we got to the time we got to Goldfinger and Thunderball and all that, and then you get more humour, etc. But and it's got the Bond theme. The music, if there's a detractor again, I think the music's underdeveloped, but it plays the Bond theme a lot, which I love. I know you're right. Uh, even Bond's doing really like. See, even you see Bond arriving at the airport and it, he's just walking along. He's got the Bond theme. That's what I want from <laughs> practically all the Bond films. I mean, it would be difficult to debate the top ten list with. I mean, they all have the Bond theme. Nah, but he, the the Doctor No one is literally it plays it every like fifteen minutes or so. That there's random scenes. He's doing any sort of low key spy work. It starts to kind of play the. The theme kicks in. It is kind of cool. I do like that for yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Bond's doing regular things, and he's got that aura because he's got that music, which you didn't really have. I don't think at that time a, a cinematic character that had that around them. But I'm not saying that's a big reason to the high up. It's just it's just something I like. No, no. I what's it, what's interesting about it actually is it's very much. I always got the sense in Doctor No that um, it was almost like you're kind of. Uh, the music of the time, wasn't it? That kind of guitar kind of cool-sounding music. Yeah, you know? around the time of the Beatles, probably. Yeah, yeah. That, that sort I think, of I think the, the, there was, yeah, there was quite a lot of, I think there was a fair bit of kind of electric guitar, jazz guitar. That See the early versions of the Bond theme? It wasn't the orchestral version you heard later. It was it was just picked on a electric guitar. But I think... I mean, I wouldn't argue too much to not have it in ninth or not have it eighth. But I mean, it's I think is I think the third is like a few of the Bond films. I would say my attention wavers a bit in the third act. See, I don't I always find with films, see, once Bond's been captured and he's sort of there's not a lot he can do because he's he's in a jail cell or he's 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 sort of restricted by the the enemy, and I feel it. It's not quite the same film after he's him and Honey are captured. Well, at that point, the film reverts to showing the the menace of the villain. Really, it's the Bond is yeah. he's he's the the villain subject, and so you're usually getting to see this, this the layer, and you know they'll usually treat them with that sort of cordial kind of. There's a pleasantness to things. It's obviously a setup, and usually leading. It's meant to lead to something bad for Bond, which obviously never ends. And they explain their entire plan. That's the template they set, and then there's parodied and things like Austin Powers. But uh, Bond, at that point, is just a passenger. He's just gonna be. I don't know. He's not doing spy work at that. Such the villain just starts telling him things. Is he not got a bit of an easy escape out of the jail cell as well? Let's leave a perfectly human-sized air vent. And he may get a bit of an electric shock, but I'm sure he'll find a way of avoiding that. <laughs> it was maybe a bit all too easy for him to escape from that jail cell. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things you look at it and it go, well, it, it was the, the budget and things like that and the simplistic kind of nature of the thing. It wasn't as thought out. The danger wheel and all these kind of things, you know? Yeah, because it's like, see, but you, you know, man, you can. You, this could be a weakness of several Bond films where Bond does the slightest thing in the big room and it causes the entire bloody base to just get destroyed. It turns up the danger wheel. There's sufficient danger to destroy the whole of Crab Key. It's kind of like, I didn't really like how Inspector, I think Bond shot one thing and it blew up the entire base. He does it the same. It's the same in Goldeneye and and the, the 
the control centre under the satellite and just by him, you know, throwing the explosive pen. So I guess you could... Yeah, it's a, it actually would give Doctor No a pass on that, considering how early it is and the sort of yeah, com- comic yeah. book nature that is. Like things like GoldenEye and Spectre have got, you know, they they I would say suffer for that. You 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 can't really give them the same kind of pass on those silly details. Whereas Doctor No first film, there's there's still you know I I I find it charming actually the danger wheel, even though it is ridiculous. Um. All right. Well, let's try and. I feel like three of us really would put on Her Majesty's there, but Fran's making a real strong case and passion for it being a slightly higher up. If that's what I'm reading from the room. Yeah. The concessions. Yep, sorry, Steve. I'll let you go. I was going to say, I don't think there's much argument against putting Doctor No number nine. That seems to be a kind of. It's it's a great film, but it's where I think we're probably at least going to agree on. It's what it. Again, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, for me, it sounds like. Fran's argument and passion for putting it on Her Majesty's further up makes me want to concede on Doctor No and lower it one. I've only got it at eight in my head, so I would when I look at that list, it's eight. But I'm happy to concede Doctor No to number nine on the basis that there's someone we're not going to get a film that I think we can all nearly agree on more than that. So yep. I think Gordon, I know you you would probably have it higher as well. Are you? Willing to concede on Doctor No being number nine, then? Dude, fine. I, yeah, I'll I'll concede on that. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was always towards the lower half of the top ten. Anyway, I think what get it, there's enough for what it did at the time that got mostly got into the top ten for me. But there was obviously aspects of the franchise that are underdeveloped. So if we're if we're comparing it to other films in the franchise, then you can see why some of them are surpassing it. Okay. All right. Because so, if you're trying to make it like for like, look at the other films, and they're using things that just were that became part of the Bond formula that weren't really established yet in Doctor No. Yeah, right. I was just I was just thinking <clears throat> for number eight. Um, I mean, obviously, Steve McCall, you were going to put Spy Who Loved Me at number nine, weren't you? That would have been my yes. So I mean, number eight, I kind of agreed with it being, you know, with it being further down on the list. I mean, I I could see it being number eight. I, I would still have, to be honest, I have in my, I would put The Spy Who Loved Me above Goldfinger and possibly even From Russia With Love. Right, okay. Um, I would put it above From Russia With Love. Maybe From Russia With Love is uh, mm, a I, bit of a yeah. here. I think it sounds as though as a group consensus, Honor Majesties might be lower than Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, I would Despite my protestations, I think that's that's the feeling I'm getting. Yeah, that's I would go with on Her Majesties certainly here. The things that bother me about on Her Majesties are worse than the irritations I have with the Spy Who Loved Me, mainly in the music. Um, For me, it's a. Do you think it's a bit of a problem how Blofeld doesn't seem to recognise Bond after the film before? I mean, I kind of, and I was thinking about this when I was watching Die Another Day. I've resigned myself to thinking of. The Bonds, the actors that play Bond is a new Bond, and it's just, and the, the timeline kind of, and my, this is my head can because I know this isn't true, but the timeline is kind of reset. Now, it doesn't make sense for when they reference Tracy, but they don't do it enough for it to bother me too much. So I was thinking of the the Brosnan Bond and the um, 
the, with the Judy Dench kind of in the in Brosnan's films as their own separate little timeline and wouldn't be part of the Spy Who Loved Me and things like that. And so the Lazenby thing, you know, I, I just see it as its own film. Like it's just. It's I think it's it's very much like its own film until you get the bit when Bond's clearing out his office and he takes out all the gadgets that he's found over the years from fun. He's got the, yeah, like yeah, the Thunderball rebreather. He's got the Red Grant's uh, watch guy. That's the bit you need to think. The only I thing, think that, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's like little references for the audience, but I suppose you could try, this is where you get headcanon that goes nuts. So you'd have to then can, can sort of like can make up this scenario where Bond has taken these things from the, you know, the the office that they, they've kept for themselves. I don't know why they'd have all this stuff anyway, but like, I guess know, um, it doesn't make I, any sense. I suppose are you saying that some films are open to interpretation? Because I, I suppose that's a fair argument. I mean, that's the thing; they're not meant to be taken seriously. The the films are humor. Like you know, there's certain ones that the, you you try and take seriously. Like Casino Royale's got a very serious tone, and even Honor Majesty's to an extent. But the little references and the little things like in Die Another Day, and they've just got you're going through the lab and you can see all the different things from the previous films. They're nods for the audience. They're not meant to be taken seriously in a lower... I don't know. I would, I would get Dino a day and maybe in the top 10. I'm sorry, you've really got me thinking. Oh, wow, well, yeah. If that's if that was what... Oh. If that's what makes a top 10 film, then Dino a day does probably get in there if it's just continuity and references to previous films. Um... Maybe so, John Cleese isn't so bad after all. Maybe Jinx isn't so bad. After. God, I, I mean, I watched. I told. I told you I watched that film. God, man, Jesus! It does start so strong. I actually don't mind that pre-title sequence. Oh yeah, the surfing thing's a bit silly, but that's only like ten seconds. Like the rest of it's actually, it's all right. <laughs> and so I did ten, send a text to you guys. Obviously, the podcast <laughs> listeners don't know, but yeah. I had to officially apologise to Steve for. <laughs> being the main culprit for voting in Diana Day over The World Is Not Enough, which after re-watching that recently as well, I do feel should have actually made it into our, our weakest pre-title sequences. So, I will accept that apology and therefore put GoldenEye at number 8 now. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. hang on. You said well, several places. That's, that's, that's more than why don't, I'll why accept don't... your apology if you get Thunderball in the top 10. Hang on, that's a fair I, deal. Hey, I was the one that was kind of fighting for Thunderball to go kind of close I think I helped helped you in that fight yeah, why, why don't we stick um, why don't we stick Honor Majesty's number 8 then because I think that's probably the high like I'm the one guy who totally loves that film so do you know what I mean yeah like I, I feel like yeah rather than there being a there's usually like an alliance that forms whereas that's quite an, it's, it's an outlier in the sense that it's this, it's this time you're the one that's in the outlier usually you are one that sways an argument because you'll jump into somebody else's fight or whatever but this time it's, uh -huh. your, it's your film that's... Well, I don't feel that it's one that anybody else feels very strongly about. My that thinking sense. is there's no other film on that... There, there's no other film on that list so far with a worse plot than Honor Majesty's main plot. Obviously, the, the Tracy storyline is fantastic. I think we all agree we love that. But the plot to every other film is not as ridiculous as the one that's the main plot of Honor Majesty's. Every other film the storyline I get and it, it's yeah it's kind of it's not as ridiculous or annoying, I suppose. I think the that plot with gold um so I almost said Goldfinger with Blofeld um his ultimatum that he's gonna release this virus across the world, it feels too secondary to what's really going on. I think the reason that most people love that film is because of the, the story between Bond and Tracy and the intervention of Tracy's dad Draco. And 
I feel that it's kind of like in Scaramanga, the man with the golden gun. It's like you maybe you didn't need that whole thing with Scaramanga taking the solo. I just hear Scaramanga was strong enough to stand on his own. I think maybe it wouldn't have been meaty enough if they if they didn't have Blofeld's viral plot. But could it not just be more about a personal vendetta between Bond and Blofeld rather than Blofeld with yet another world ransom demand? I mean, Blofeld must be getting tired of just... <laughs> Are we getting tired of just the... It's really, oh, he's just getting boring, all these all these ultimatums he makes. I, th- I think that, I don't know, they could have, somehow they could have done something different with that. It does get a bit pinky in the brain. Like just a different plot to take over the world every day. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I totally get that. And that it's bob, funny bobsled scene. He's, he's, both oh. has gone to hide and chopped off his earlobes. He's like trying to be so low-key and not get noticed. And then, then he just pops up saying, oh, by the way, are you going to threaten to release a virus all over the world? It's a bit weird. Mm. Yeah, it's made it into the top 10, certainly. It, didn't, it doesn't make my personal top 10. Um, it's just... I don't know. I don't find... I like to feel that there's a real chemistry with the villain, and I just don't think it worked in this film. Um, the bobsled so scene much... as well. Just, yeah. Nah. Right, that's enough. I've, I've conceded it to number eight. All right, okay. Talking All right, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Like, that's the thing. I've said many good things about it, despite it not being in my top ten. Like, like we won't regurgitate, but all the, you know, Diana Rigg, everything around that and the stunts. Okay, we've now got three locked in. Seven more oh. to go. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like it's pretty much. I know Steve has already pitched for the Spy Who Loved Me, so that looks that could certainly be. I could I could look into that. My one would be from Russia with Love. I don't know how we feel about that. Yeah, um, yeah. I would go along with that maybe. Yeah. Okay. I'd, as I'd... much as I love the film, there's again it's just established. It was like the. Sort of second coming Doctor No established so many staples of the franchise. It brought a um it brought this classic spy from literally world onto the the, the main screen. Doc from Russia with Love enhances that. You you know, you get a few insecure for the first time and um you get a proper henchman, you get a a, a couple of real strong villains, you get like Rosa Cleb and and it's good and it, you know as well, it's really it's kind of starting to slip into the classic staples of Bond, you know, the first John Barry score as well. And and the thing is the great one great thing about From Rush with Love is you're always a step ahead of Bond. It's like the audience knows the danger Bond's going into because you see you see the Spectre meeting been planned out early in the film, but Bond doesn't know that and I don't know if there's another Bond film where that happens. Mm. So there's just so there's actually so much to love about that film, but I still I agree with you maybe Steve, I don't know. I think it's maybe Found its place here. Yeah, that's for me. It sits about there. It's mainly only on the basis that the the other films for me, there's something about them that just edges it. It's not so much a failure in From Russia with Love. There's not many things I don't like about it, other than the other films built on those first two films um, and exceeded them, and that's kind of it, really. Um, I like this slow-paced sort of kind of spy. Uh, you know, nature of the film. It's it's, it's in the spy world. Uh, yeah, it's definitely a spy, it, it's a spy film, whereas the other films became action films or comedy films yeah. or action comedies, and the the all the sort of genre started to change. But this film is is a, is a spy film, and that's it even as a, a subplot as well, because the the whole thing with Karen Babe and chased by the Bulgarians and Bonds having not only having to 
concentrate in his own work. He's having to deal with all that as well. Right, so me and you, Gordon, would probably put it there. Steve, did you think it would be in the seventh spot? I think, Or would yeah, you, you still prefer um, the Spy? I know because you're, you're obviously pitching for the Spy Who Loved Me. Would you? I would put I would put the Spy Who Loved Me lower down. I think I actually prefer From Russia With Love to Goldfinger, weirdly enough. But I think that might be a little controversial for this. I think everyone else would put Goldfinger a little higher. From Russia, for some reason, despite having watched it twice ages ago, still sticks with me. And there's moments from it I can recall. And I remember sitting and just enjoying it. Um, so it's, although it is weirdly lower down on my top 10 so it's i can see it as a consensus being number seven again i would still have the spy who loved me lower but i can i could live with from russia with love being a little lower i would i would perhaps argue that goldfinger would go below from russia but goldfinger is quite important i think that's film three is where they really cemented um they really kind of got a grasp on the franchise that's where everything was kind of uh Everything that happened to Goldfinger is kind of what's been repeated from here on in. I can see the importance of it. Uh, so uh, it's, yeah. I wouldn't have a problem with From Russia With Love next, but I, I would put... You would put Goldfinger or Spy Who Loved Me first? I would definitely put... For, I would go from sort of 765, Spy Who Loved Me, Goldfinger, Russia With Love. So I, I would probably be... And it's very close, I will admit, between From Russia With Love and Goldfinger. It's From Russia With Love, Goldfinger, The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, Fran, what were you on this? Um, I will go along with whatever you guys want to do. I mean, I think um, in this case, I don't really have a dog in the fight. Do you know what I mean? You don't... You're not, you've not got a preference? What's your... Surely you must have a preference over preference, Spy yeah. Who Loved Me, Goldfinger, From Russia With Love. Um, well, Goldfinger, I would. Always, I mean, you know what I would say about Goldfinger, but I mean, I just, I, I don't know. I mean, it's a difficult one because I feel like I'm almost in the sense of having to compliment Goldfinger, which is kind of. It feels slightly ridiculous given my previous criticisms of it, but I feel like From Russia would probably be seven for me. Right. But I mean, do you prefer From Russia with Love over Goldfinger? Not as a whole movie. Right. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah. Like, and, 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 you know, if we're looking at it the way that we've debated it, I've got to take the scene out of my mind in Goldfinger, do you know what I mean? And and think about the rest of it. So Goldfinger would be higher. And that's that's how I feel. That's exactly it. Um, the, we've spoke about it in the previous podcast, so we won't, don't have to go into it, but all the pussy glow stuff towards the end and, the, and that stuff is what is the main detractor for me. If it didn't have that, and Bond was a bit more of a uh, had more agency in the plot. There was a in the, by the final third, it would be in my top five because it was at first, um, but it's it's severely hampered by the the hay barn scene, um, and sort of yeah the flippancy of of the way they treat Pussy Galore, the guy Hall, the script really I suppose, um, so. But I think I have to prefer it just as an enjoyable film overall over from Russia with Love. Gordon, what about you? I think I would, I would like to see Living Daylights, but I'm not even getting oh, yeah, to right, five you... or four because yeah. I know there's I think there's too much of a strong um argument in favour of the Living Daylights. I know it's it's obviously pretty high in the list, so yeah, I'll maybe kinda of give it a rest for now. But yeah, I'd probably go along with from Russia with Love, Steve, because there's um there was a lot of things still had to be established at that point to really 
it's not quite got the iconic status of a lot of the other ones. I mean, if if what your thing is is to have a realistic spy thriller, it's like number one or number two because it's really in the spy world. It's really it's like in the it could actually happen side of things, and I mean, you've still got a kind of although Daniela Bianchi is really good as Titania, she's more of the sort of damsel in distress, which um, I guess when you, you can, if you compare even the likes of or Imagine Secret Service, you could say there's a much stronger like, female lead there, same with a lot, even Licensed to Kill or Spy Who Loved Me, so you get that as well. I think as well, does, I mean, it's hard to we're get, see once we get into top seven, it's like the things I'm going to criticise films for, there are very, very minor things, so it's hard to there's just maybe not enough iconic stuff in, in from Russia with Love on it's maybe just not quite as enjoyable as maybe two that maybe bonds on the the Orient Express for too long bonds in, in Istanbul for too long maybe maybe you need a bit more traveling between exotic locations I think Bond lets his guard down maybe a bit too easily with Red Grant and the map on the on the train but see it's like it's kind of small things but I would I would go away from Russia with Love maybe. Yeah, I think so. On the point about um, Tatiana sort of being the dams on the street, I agree she has that kind of character. She falls in that template. But I, d- I don't judge this one so much on that respect because it is only their second film in the 60s. And also, um, you also have a character like Rosa Klebb in that film to complement it. So th- as much as, yes, the female lead is that kind of template, damsel character bit of a cliche you've got she's a pawn in this story it makes sense she's a victim really of specter and also you've got rosa Klebb to to kind of portray another you know she's a female character who's very much not that she is i mean yeah a powerful villain not you know the glamorous damsel type she's and i think that's it gives it a bit more edge over the sort of films like your diamonds are forever and all these kind of films that are just the same type of character oh mate you've now got me thinking actually to give Titania credit she's actually I think one of the Bond girls that gets stronger later in the film because she she um, saves Bond's life at the end and she kind of takes control on the boat but the likes of License to Kill you could say like there's a weakening of Pam's character or in um, Goldfinger one, there's maybe a weakening of Pussy Gore's character and um, yeah and Spy Who Loved Me Anya because she kind of <laughs> she goes from like I'll kill you Bond to becoming all kind of fluffy and you know just... I know actually there's that you know I did say that at the time that I honestly wish that they had went with it that she becomes like she she keeps going with that thing I'm going to kill you kind of thing and becomes the, the sort of thing Bond has to conquer and kill at the end or something I don't know that had been a really dark ending maybe it wouldn't have fitted the tone of the film but I think that had been really interesting Okay. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting alternate reality. Yeah. Okay, um, so is From Russia With Love the consensus choice for the next slot? Or do we feel... Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, right, yeah. okay. There we go. The point about Goldfinger being more iconic, I think, swung me there. So, yeah. I think the... the, the see, they both get John Barry scores, but the Goldfinger is like... Is just The score there is just one of the very best of the Bond films. Right. It's just... I just that you know I I just think the score is very iconic and strong and it's that obviously I, you've I've said before just how important music is to the Bond films. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, 
Okay, six films left. I feel like this might be the time for The Spy Who Loved Me as much as I feel it's one higher. I feel like Steve's argument for it. So we've got The Spy Who Loved Me and The Living Daylights. Gordon pitched. Fran, would you, is this where you say Goldfinger would be? Um, or do you prefer, would you rather see The Spy Who Loved Me or one of the other films in this slot? Well, that's the thing, is that taking them as whole movies, I would see maybe The Spy Who Loved Me next and then Goldfinger being like number five. Yeah, I wouldn't have Goldfinger higher than five, but um, I would just slightly have The Spy Who Loved Me above it, but it's very close. Um, so, Steve, obviously, I think there's more chance, Gordon, that, that we'll get that The Spy Who Loved Me will fit into six based on Steve's argument and that Fran also agrees with that. And it's just one away from what I would feel over The Living Daylights, which you nominated for nine, but I think a lot of us, we kind of, the room isn't going for that one, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well... Before, I'm not going down without a fight with that one. Sorry, but <laughs> okay, so I'm going right. to say one gonna... of my signature cats amongst the signature pigeons here. And I'm going to, if you're not, if you don't um, want the living daylights here, I'm going to give you another Timmy and I'm going to say License to Kill. Oh, God. Oh, right. No. In regards, man, I love beer. License to Kill. Is, I love that's that's not kill. how this works. No, we, I, I think it's one of those things where we know, we know that we're getting to this by hill of being goldfinger now it feels natural yeah it feels right for them to be around about around about the middle of this because because if you look at casino royale the living daylights license to kill and goldeneye they are like you're getting towards your absolute pinnacle of perf- perfection there uh, what what's and then we're getting into the argument of what one's the most perfect do you know what i mean and spy of me and goldfinger are not in that fight I don't think. I just don't see them being in that fight. I'm with you on that. I think if there's um, detractors, it's you know, you should certainly share with them what they are. I mean, I, I think with license. Well, kill, it's difficult, Gordon, because it's not really about detraction at this stage. Because if you think about *The Spy Who Loved Me* and, and *Goldfinger*, they've beaten another twenty odd films to get to this bit. <laughs> like, I mean, they're 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 not. I think what's also important to remember as well is that the four films that we're looking at that are reaching the very top of the Bond pile are the ones who are later in the series because and they're the films that have learned a lot of the lessons of the previous pitfalls. Yeah. Um, and that's a natural thing. I mean, you wouldn't get a bunch of phones and say, ah, screw your iPhone XR, I'm going to get a Nokia 3310. Do you know what I mean? You wouldn't because... In every conceivable way, the later phone is better. <laughs> That's I mean? a good I like that. Yeah. <laughs> he's done it again. You know, he's done it again. He's in a bloody analogies. Uh, right. I feel it would be. Sorry. Having said Making that, myself laugh. Having said that, I think I think I think it's Goldfinger. So, do, uh, Dalton, <laughs> Gordon. Uh, <laughs> Do you feel it's a Dalton film fits in number six? Steve, where do, where do you, you... Are you the spy who loved me then? Yeah, I couldn't put a Dalton thing... I couldn't put any of the Dalton films anywhere lower than top five. I think it's it's definitely a fight between uh, Spy Who Loved Me and Goldfinger. Goldfinger is better on the whole but has one horrific scene, whereas the Spy Who Loved Me overall has more in it that I just struggled to enjoy. Ah, so, right. Um, Okay. That's that's kind of where I am. So I I wouldn't actually argue too badly against what goes six and what goes five. I think it's probably those two films. 
the order, I'm relatively open to um, kind of persuasion on. I'm not overly bothered about which one goes above the other. I think they're probably roughly the same level for me. And Gordon, your this argument isn't what you would feel as even in six and five. You don't feel both of these films would fit in this these spots, do you? you that was a Goldfinger and Spy Who Loved Me. Said. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think you even fit in. Well, I don't the, think it's quite the time. So, I don't think it's quite a time yet. I think, I mean, the obviously the you know if I think something goes in somewhere for a reason, the reason well, I can kill it's the reason. I mean, it's it's a very magnetic film. I watch it so much, and there's so much to love about it. And I think the stunts are great. I think great villain type plot. Um, but there's there's a weakening of certain characters later in that film, and I, I just feel it's not. I think to have to be in, to quite make it in the top five, it has to. There's certain parts it doesn't. It still it doesn't quite feel like a Bond film at times. License to kill the way a lot of the others do. But see, I, my argument to that is sometimes that's maybe it's it's benefit. Sometimes there is things that about Bond films that they they trip themselves up so much. And for something like *The License to Kill*, um, the reasons I like it are where the differentiate a little i think the score i i do think the score is not great it's not like bad it's just it's just a bit it's okay but See, the, rest, I, I, the rest of it i think is fantastic villains the writing well most of the writing and the action scenes the stunts and just the general nature of the film that sort of menace it has the underground feeling to it a bit more realistic all of that dalton's performance and that's the thing who's to say what's a bond film when you know, as the Bond Bond franchise evolves, I mean, your Moore films are completely different to the Connery. Do you know what I mean? Connery films. There's certain threads that follow through. I mean, you know, there's there's conventions of Bond movies that people who probably were fans of the Bond books beforehand thought this is pish. You know, this is nothing like the Bond I read. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you know, it's it, it, there are things that later fans or people will like that that older fans maybe maybe uh, they got used to tradition. I also feel that Gordon, you might be entering the painful bit I experienced a wee while ago with Honor Majesties, where all of the cast betrayed me and stabbed me in the back and, and rubbished my film. So, um, Gordon, I just I, I, as I, in my experience of that pain, I'm just going to try to tell you it's not doesn't last very long. Um, <laughs> It's not that bad, like it. it you, and then afterwards, you feel a wee bit better again. But then you might have a chance to get revenge, though. So um, you're getting revenge. What you're saying. <laughs> well, I don't know. So you picked not... off Gordon first, then you'll pick off Goldeneye, and then you'll pick off one of well, the other. Goldeneye down at number ten, to be honest. But oh, wow. like it. Um, no, it, it's just it's one of those things where, you know, I think, I, I, and it's interesting because in the previous top ten, we had a lot more split down the middle debates whereas in this one i feel like we're going to have more of these pardon me where there's one of us who feels a certain way and the others don't do you know what i mean um you know with the honor majesties like in my personal list which i'm going to write a personal list and put it on the site i think at some point um, you know it'd be interesting to write a bit about honor majesties and why i would have it higher in the list but it's where it is and it, there's something almost scientific about this where you know, because we're not four Bond fans, like like super fans, do you know what I mean? And we're also not four people who've never seen Bond before. We're not four Golden Eye. Do you know what I mean? We're not we're not all the same kind of Bond fan. Does that make sense? 
So we're getting we're getting things where they kind of, even though I'm a, I don't know how to describe it. Honor Majesties feels like it should be number eight now that it's there. Does that make sense? Like it feels like it, like I argued for it, and it's ended up where it's supposed to have got. And I kind of feel like that's what's going to happen, and with the next two, with the Spy Who Loved Me and uh, Goldfinger, 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 because there's me arguing against Goldfinger loads and loads and loads and loads. Do you know what I mean? But now I can see how through through the process of the debate and thinking about all of that, how it would fit here. Does that make sense? Like it, it feels like each film has got to where it should be. It's really weird. Yeah, we're being clinical with it, basically, rather than because if we each went with our hearts, we would not get past the top ten because we'd get to a top four, we'd have four favourites, and we'd be completely unable to come to a consensus. So yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you do have to be clinical about it. You almost have to look at it from an sort of objective view rather than objective rather than subjective. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm getting yeah, yeah. yeah you're I, right. I suppose it's reading the room as well, and it's because it's based on. A collective decision, I suppose. Well, it's, it's like going to the dentist, right? You're terrified and it's not pleasant, but the relief once that tooth is gone, right? That's what it feels like whenever <laughs> whenever one of the films I'm arguing this, about... This one might be stretching out a bit. I'm, I'm no, struggling I mean, with this one, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> the debate, right. well, imagine it this way. The debate is like is like lying in bed with toothache, right? And then you you don't want a admit it that you have to go but you go and then afterwards when it's all over you feel so much better like that's what i feel like when the film en- when a film ends up where it should be on the list that i'm arguing for i don't like do you know what i mean like it feels in my mind i would have put on her majesty's up but like four or five but the fact that it's at number eight actually feels okay for me now now that it's after the fact it's hard to explain okay um gordon obviously I'm just trying to get Gordon to understand how he's going to feel in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I have seen things that aren't there, Fran, because license the car, I'm not, I'm not going to get so kind of fire and defensive of it to say that, oh, it has to go number six. I'm not accepting this podcast. Listen, I mean, license to kill. Like, there's so, like I said, there's so much to love about it. All I'm saying, it all I was saying to you was, you know, obviously give me a chance to explain why it, it, I would say it goes in now, which I've already said anyway, but there's enough great stuff that, you know, like, if we don't want to put it in there now, that's fine. I mean, I can see, I said already, I can see the, I can see where Goldfinger can fall down a bit. Not as much Spy Who Love Me, there is stuff though, which which I mentioned earlier. Out of those two, what would you say is the, the weaker film? What- Out of Goldfinger and Spy Who Love Me? Yeah. Well, that's a hard one actually, because I think actually I've if, I've probably got more negative things to say about Goldfinger, and it, it didn't used to be the case. That's the, yeah, that's the case for me, where it was my top for a while, and then we watched The Spy Who Loved Me, and it pipped it a little, and I've sort of, as time has passed, my view in Goldfinger has got worse and worse. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd be happy to see, I mean, obviously with my personal irritation towards that film, I'd be happy to see it out of the top five. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, I just can see... The Spy Who Loved Me and Goldfinger occupying five and six, but I mean, Goldfinger occup- occupying six, you know, could see that, and then the Spy Who Loved Me being number five. I, I definitely that's that's what I would go with. Um, Steve, you're you'd be the opposite. I'm assuming you'd be Spy Who. Would- yep. But I can come round to that view. Like I said, it's two. I think they're in the right place. The order isn't too uh, big an issue. Right. And that's that's the thing. Like I'm I'm literally like it's like. 
swithering between the two because looking at Goldfinger as a whole movie, I would put it above this boy who loved me. Do you know what I mean? But in terms of how I, just how I feel about them, I would put it below this boy who loved me. Does that make sense? Yes. Like so, there's two different things going on at once there. So I'm easy as to where the I'm easy. I'm 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 I've not got a massive. I, I guess I lean towards Goldfinger being below the spy who loved me. Yeah, same. Uh, Gordon, it's uh, you've, I know you've accepted obviously the Dalton argument's not working. Um, so of the two, I mean, f- we're slowly coming round to Goldfinger being the weakest. Steve would obviously slightly probably could see would definitely still go with the spy who loved me what's what's your thoughts on them would you say goldfinger we, we could put a six if it's between those two oh i don't know like they've, they've always have they've always been two of my favorite bond films i think like i said that there's more things that come to mind with goldfinger of being slight problems and i think see with spy who loved me at least they created something from nothing because the Spy Who Me novel, there wasn't really much that was carried into the film. It was pretty much an original screenplay. But Goldfinger, they, they took a lot of what was in the novel, but they enhanced it. So you could, I guess if you want to look along that kind of angle, that's another thing in favour of Spy, really. But then again, Spy, obviously, they kind of, they're sort of, in a way, they're regurgitating the You Only Love Twice plot, with the like, stolen, uh, the lost submarines, like the lost rockets kind of thing. I don't know. I mean, it, they yeah. both get so much style to me. They both get so many iconic moments. They both get even dark scenes. I mean, you think how dark it is in Goldfinger that the Goldfinger is just so nasty that he'll kill somebody by painting them. But then Stromberg, he'll throw somebody to the shark, and they're not just like it's not just like killing, but you know they're killing these almost innocent women. <laughs> it's it's just they both them um, so hard. Yeah, I was thinking about the different elements of what make a film that you could grade it on you know music theme song plot villain and in my head i was like okay theme song for me goldfinger music goldfinger uh bond performance i would say a bit equal um a villain it's about equal odd job versus jaws you can't really one isn't better than the other i don't think they're both iconic and fantastic and, and villain i suppose that's the henchman as well villain stromberg goldberg you know Close again. Goldberg. Goldberg? Goldberg the rest of the Goldberg. <laughs> You're thinking of Dave Batista. Yeah, I'm thinking yeah, that's that's yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, yeah, it's Goldfinger. Um Yeah. One thing it's... they did better in seeing that you know I said they bring in the novel to life, they kind of improved in the novel and that seeing the novel I, they just wanted Goldfinger to have a big gold heist and steal the gold, but it was I think it was better how they had him make turn the gold radioactive. That was a bit Try more clever, I think, as an idea. It's a little bit more yeah. intelligent than just stealing all the gold. I think the final third, though, of Spy Who Loved Me edges over Goldfinger. Like, it, just in general. The battle itself is fantastic. And the super tanker over the Fort Knox battle, it's fine. It's good. There's some good stuff in it. But not quite as... They hadn't, you know, got there yet. Um, and Bond obviously has more agency. So much agency that, you know, he reads one page of instruction booklet. So much agency that he's an agent. Yeah. I, I would say I would just have The Spy Who Loved Me just over Goldfinger, but it, like emphasize how close it is. But, um, go, I mean, Gordon, you're probably... So it sounds like me and Fran are on the Goldfinger side of the, the train and Steve's on The Spy Who Loved Me. Gordon, 
you're kind of the deciding. Well, I don't know how you're deciding because there'll be two on two, and then we're. <laughs> <asked> <laughs> well, the problem is today. I'll, today I'll say spy love me tomorrow. I'll say Goldfinger. Right. Because I don't suppose anyone has access to all of our rankings for these two films because I know what I ranked them both. Um, and I, I, I'm trying to think about in terms of when we watched them first time round, how we rated them. I gave Goldfinger a five at first, then Retro actively downgraded it to like a four. About four films later, The Spy Who Loved Me, I either gave a four point five or a five at the time, and then. I think, yeah, so it's like just above it, but it's so close in my head. Like, those two are almost the equivalent of each other for each Bond. Like, actually, yeah, I'm the same. I give Goldfinger four and Spy Who Loved Me four and a half. I actually ranked that higher. But then, retroactively, you feel retroactively, I feel probably switched around. Yeah. Yep. Tough, tough time. Do you know what could settle, actually? I think C and Goldfinger, I've said before how the, the last act of the film. I don't enjoy it as much. It doesn't quite hold my attention the same way, but I think Spy Who Love Me is very consistent throughout. Yeah. So I think I think I would put in Goldfinger here. Uh, I'm, I would agree with that. That was kind of similar to what I was saying in the sense that the third act battle is so much better and yeah, it's just more consistent is a good word to, to describe it. The film doesn't for me, it's only that music that, that has a real kind of like ugh, groan worthy point, but it's a short sequence. There's maybe I too can... much. I only go Steve, so I was just going to say I can actually go with that. If you're looking at those final thirds, the action in Spy Who Loved Me is actually far better than Goldfinger, which has a great plot, but in terms of big sort of battle scenes, mm-hmm. the Spy Who Loved Me towards the end is definitely more enjoyable, if a little ridiculous. Right. So it sounds like we're coming around to Goldfinger and number six. Okay. I can do that. And I think then Spy Who Loved Me now finds its place in number five. I know, Gordon, you would want to still fight for the Dalton films, but I think it's probably going to be Spy Who Loved Me here, if you're okay with that. Do you agree? I read in the room, I think it would have to be, yeah. Yeah. um... And that's where I'm going to cut this episode. This was a full three-hour podcast. And I've decided to split it. And it's also a reminder that this was filmed, or filmed? Recorded back in December 2020. So yeah, can't hide it. It's been (laughs) waiting to be edited for over a year. So apologies to the guys and also our listener. Hopefully plural. And yep, so you can look forward to the next part. I'll probably get that uploaded at some point today as well. So they will go up together. Um, But yeah, so... That's the end of this part. Look forward to the next soon. More Bond ranking to come. Thanks. Bye-bye.